continuing in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. If you, wanna, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, get, turn to Matthew chapter 18. And last week, Mike introduced this chapter to us and gave us kind of an overview of the whole chapter, the section of, of teaching. This is the fourth of five major sections of teaching in the book of Matthew. And really, this whole section, this whole chapter is really one cohesive teaching with one overarching theme, but there is a lot of content in here, so we've broken it up into three separate messages. There's several different sub-themes that you can uh, follow or identify in here, so to tackle this, we've kind of tried to break it up into three messages and focus on three different themes throughout this chapter, but it's important with that in mind to remember that it's important not to take any one verse out of context from the rest of um, or even a section of verses out of context from the rest of, of the chapter, which is really true of the whole Bible, but specifically with this section of teaching. Because the topics, even though there are separate topics, they overlap each other and they lead from one concept into the next. They all connect with each other. And we said that quite a bit when we went through the first major section of teaching in Matthew, which is the Sermon on the Mount early on in the book. It's significantly longer than any other section of teaching the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, or five chapters long, but it, it cohesively still follows one key thread of, of the kingdom of God throughout the whole thing. And really, all of Jesus' teaching had ultimately to do with that one thing, with the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. How to be prepared for it, how to understand it, and knowing how to be a part of it, how to enter it. And in the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of it was Jesus describing what types of people belong in the kingdom, how they behave. And there's a lot of focus on the individual heart condition and the results thereof and understanding how people had been misusing the law. Now, in this passage, in in chapter 18 here, Jesus is addressing the concept of a whole community of these kingdom people living in community, in relationship with each other. Because the seed of this whole, <clears throat> this whole kingdom that he's talking about, the seed is starting with his inner circle, his closest 12 followers. And he wants them to understand how they should be living amongst each other after he's gone. He's been talking for a while now about how he's going to be uh, killed and then leave them. They're kind of in the mix of confusion and denial at this time, but still they've got to be having this in the back of their heads that he's going to be leaving. And this whole section of teaching was prompted by his disciples very clearly demonstrating that they really don't quite understand what it, what, how they should be living together. As Mike pointed out last week, they've been arguing with each other, we can see in Luke. While traveling, while on the road, they've had this debate about which one of them was the most important disciple. Which one of us is the greatest? Essentially, they're having a power struggle. And it's, in a way, it's understandable that their minds would kind of be going there if they're all, all these guys are followers of one man. All 12 are following Jesus. And he's telling them that he's going to be gone soon. And Jesus really doesn't have an officially appointed second in command to take over. He's kind of recognized something special in Peter. He said he's going to build his church on him. But that that still doesn't really come with any official sort of hierarchy of authority among the disciples. So they want to know who is the next greatest. It's not clear. Who's the best disciple who deserves to lead the group? 
and receive the most honor in the kingdom of God. So then his response to that question of who's the greatest really reveals their fundamental misunderstanding of how people are valued in the kingdom. What Jesus says is whoever humbles themselves like a child is the greatest. He's telling him, in other words, you're seeking glory and pride, but what you really should be doing is seeking humility towards each other and the rest of the world in order to discover the true values of the kingdom. And I want to remind you, Mike brought, it, brought this in last week, but it's important to distinguish that Jesus called his followers to resemble children, not in their faith, it was not to have faith like a child, not in their wisdom or their understanding or their maturity. He called them to resemble children in their humility. And at that time, the disciples had just failed to recognize the value of humility in God's economy. It just wasn't something they would be used to associating with greatness. Greatness and humility are like polar opposites in their minds. But the implication is that if we all think of ourselves honestly, humbly, through a kingdom lens, we'll recognize that we are all equal to each other and that we are all dependent upon God for everything and none of us deserve anything. We're all helpless as infants apart from our Father, the author and sustainer of life. So none of us has the right to elevate ourselves as being more important than anyone else. So the disciples were really just asking the wrong question. So he redirects their focus from who's the greatest to who's the humblest, and from there he goes on to teach about what living in a community of God-loving, Jesus-following people should look like. And that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. It's about what the kingdom community should be, how the church, how people of God should be amongst each other. So it starts with how we should be humble, and then he takes that into verses 6 through 9. He talks about how important it is to protect the children, to protect each other. God's children are, are so precious to him that we should really take seriously any corruption that threatens to compromise the integrity and the purity of, of the flock. So it's important to keep in mind that context of how both humility and purity and both grace but also protection should be held as priorities for the church. When we come to the next few uh, verses here, Jesus is going to explain this using a metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep and kind of put it to a uh, practical application. So let's read together beginning in verse 10, chapter 18. And I do have this up here. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Now, hold up. What does that mean? Their angels continually viewing the face of the Father? Now, this is a deep rabbit hole. Uh, this verse has been the cause of a lot of discussion. I could probably spend the whole rest of the morning just talking about this and how it relates to the spiritual realm. And, and check out Daniel chapter 10 sometime if you're curious about that kind of stuff. But really, it's a rabbit hole for another day. Bottom line, in this case, just know that when Jesus says this, this is just kind of an interesting way of saying that these children are very important to the Father. He's just emphasizing how important they are to God and that he cares and protects for them. And then realize, remember, in the broader context, Jesus is referring to a literal child, but he's also 
declaring that all of God's children, all of anyone who follows Jesus is declared to be a child of God and is important enough for God to pay attention to. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 12. What do you think? If any man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone, gone astray. In this way, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, all of this really goes together, and it's, that's why it's important not to take one verse out of context in this passage. So let's start by looking at this little parable of, of sheep in verses 12 through 14. Uh, the, the preceding verses before it, have established that we should all be viewing each other as equally valuable. And these verses establish that that value in God's eyes is, is very high, and it should be in ours as well. If God values everyone this highly, then we should be as well. And a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, a lot of sheep, still values each of those sheep very much, and he does not want to lose any of them. So the point of this parable, by the way, it's not that God will abandon the 99 just to save the one, and the 99 are left to, to starve. No, they're still taken care of. Even when God has you know, millions of children, he's still going to value and pursue each individual person with as much love and affection and, as he would anyone else. So the pursuit of the one is certainly not at the expense of the 99. Rather, it's a concern for the preservation of each individual as a part of the whole. And the whole is not complete without every part. So this, con <clears throat> this concept really teaches, uh, sets up the teaching in the next few verses, which addresses then how to handle a situation in which maybe that sheep does not want to come willingly back to the fold. When someone has strayed from the truth or is causing harm to someone else, that person is a lost sheep. It should be considered a valuable, loved person, and every effort should be made to restore them, to bring them back. Ultimately, we have all been lost sheep at some point in our lives, and we would stay lost if it weren't for Jesus, the ultimate good shepherd who came to save us. Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 53, 6. He says, We all went astray like sheep, all of us. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all, referring to the Messiah taking on the punishment now God is, is frequently described throughout the Old Testament as a shepherd to his people, which would have been really a very relatable metaphor. All Jews 
came from ancestors who were sheep and cattle herders, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many continued in that tradition over hundreds of years into the times of the prophets and the kings. And in the Psalms, people of Israel are called to worship the good shepherd as, as humble and grateful sheep who have been brought to good pastures. There's so many references to God as a <clears throat> uh, shepherd throughout the Bible, but I just want to read a couple psalms here. Psalm 95, 6 and 7 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His land. And then Psalm 103 says, Know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who has made us and not ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And then probably one of the most well-known, well-beloved psalms of all time is uh, one that we actually read earlier today, if you're here for the music. It's one where David is writing about, King David is writing, or before he was king, about how good it is to be under the care of the, the good shepherd, Psalm 23. So I'm going to read it again. Psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, makes me, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Just out of curiosity, does anyone have that memorized? That's a, pretty, that's a very common passage for people to memorize. I think I memorized it as a kid. Not in this translation, probably. This is a newer translation, a literal translation. Um, it's the uh, Legacy Standard Bible. This is the LSB. Um, Beautiful, beautiful poem, and this is another one where I could probably spend all, all morning just talking about this, this psalm, but it's, it's just a beautiful representation of God as the perfectly good shepherd and, and caring for his sheep. David placed his faith in God even during his darkest hours, and God then used him to lead Israel into a time of, of peace and prosperity. In fact, God even said that when he was anointing, David was in the process of becoming king, he said that God said he was appointing David as a shepherd, an under-shepherd, if you will, of, of his people, of God's people. He said, I'm entrusting my people to you as king. See that in 2 Samuel 5, 2 and 3. It says, Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel, and Yahweh said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So he actually uses that word, shepherd. And then that's when they anoint David as king. Now, of course, that all the, the, the goodness didn't necessarily last. David eventually failed. He, he reconciled with God, but he made quite a mess of his family. And then generations of, of Israel and her kings after him just really failed to be that good shepherd on behalf of Yahweh. They turned away from God, wandered away from their shepherd, ultimately ended up being scattered in exile. Their city and their temple was destroyed, and though some would later return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, some of it, you know, they, they would forever 
be dispersed, and nothing was really the same after that. And we find in Ezekiel, I'm going to go to Ezekiel 34 if you want to read along. Um, it's kind of a longer one, so I don't have the full passage up here. So this was written during exile, where God is actually promising to personally intervene in order to save his lost, his lost sheep, to gather them back to him. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11. Do you have the reference up there at least? For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. So God is promising that he himself will seek out and gather his scattered sheep, restore them to the pastures and the still waters that we read about in Psalm 23. Now Jesus in Matthew is placing himself in the place of that shepherd, saying he is the one who will restore God's people. And as it turns out, he came not just as the Jews thought to gather the Jews back to Jerusalem, but to restore all of humanity back to God, to provide reconciliation for humans before God, that we can live forever in his presence, under his care, and under his provision. Now, I think it's also worth reading the parallel passage in Luke. We, did, we often turn to Luke to, to kind of fill in some of the details or get some different details that, that Matthew has. We can find it in Luke 15, starting in verse 4. And this is actually in a little bit different context, but it's the same parable, all right? He says... What man among you, starts off the same way, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? Here's the part I like that, it, that he adds. When he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. The good shepherd pursues his sheep, not merely out of duty or obligation, but it's out of the love and the joy with which the sheep are then received back into the fold. And again, this parable is told in a slightly different context in Luke. He's telling it this time in response to the Pharisees who are criticizing him for spending time with disreputable people for keeping company with tax collectors and, and sinners and even eating with them. But it's those people that he's pursuing as the shepherd. Those who, those many who have uh, 
or there are many who have made, merely wandered a little ways off, um, but then there are also those who find themselves in just the darkest, desolate ravines. And he loves each of us deeply and personally and wants us to be a part of his community. So with all that context in mind, it's in the next few verses where Jesus is calling his community, those of us who are with him, to be more than just, if we're the flock of sheep, we're more than just, you know, witless, complacent sheep, right? Referring to ourselves as sheep doesn't mean that we just, you know, blindly roll around in the grass, right? He's calling his disciples to become active participants alongside him in restoring the flock. So the sheep become shepherds. In last week's passage, uh, Jesus was warning against causing others to stumble, causing the other children to stumble or sheep to stumble, whatever analogy you use. He's, he's saying how important it is not to cause people to stray. And the picture of the big millstone, you don't want that around your neck. Now here in verses 15, 16, and 17, he's advising on basically how to do the opposite, how to reach out to restore someone after they have strayed rather than causing someone to stray. And he's outlined a basic practical approach basically to conflict resolution within the church here. Let's, let's just read it again, uh, starting in verse 15. He says, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now you might notice in in verse 15, there are some manuscripts which add um, against you. So if your brother sins against you, so you might have that in your translation. But the earliest manuscripts and the, the, the cleanest manuscripts we have don't include that. So it's really the, this process really applies to either situation, whether it's a personal offense or just something that you've observed. So this, you know, it could be like me stealing something from you uh, would be a personal offense to you, whereas if you saw me stealing money out of Mike's wallet, you know, that's you just noticing it and, and wanting to confront it. No, no. Or, you know, if, if you saw me, I would never do this, but if you saw me do something like put pineapple on pizza, I would expect to be confronted about that. <laughs> so, yeah, whether someone's done something to, to hurt you or you notice someone else in the church just sinning unrepentantly or causing harm to someone else, causing someone to stumble, this passage is... is outlining how it ought to be handled. Now, with personal offenses, I'll say our first reaction, our first response, really ought to be to work to forgive them in our hearts, even before confronting it. So if one of you were to steal my coat, um, if, as a brother and sister in Christ, I'd probably, we'd probably have to talk about that, why you did that. But you know, if some stranger did it, you know, just let them have it. And if you did it and it's like, you really need a coat that bad, you can have it. <laughs> like, I, I have other coats and I'm not going to harbor any hard feelings about it. Now, my car, if this, that gets stolen, I only have one of those. Um, I, 
ask for it back, but then even if I didn't get it back, you know, I'm still going to work on just forgiving and letting go of that. And then I, but what I'd be more concerned about is really the, the heart issues of the thief and what causes them to, to do that, to steal from me. So realize the goal here is not necessarily to achieve justice or to, to right what was wrong. In a matter of you know, just simple property, if, if property can be restored, returned, then that's great. But it's not always that simple, right? There's not always a way to make up for what has been done when people act sinfully and hurtfully towards others. So the goal is for the person at fault to recognize what they've done is wrong and to repent. And it's that repentance that's key. It's the repentance that saves us and restores us back to the flock. And yes, true repentance causes then a heart transformation and a decision to turn around, to change our path. So yes, true repentance ought to prompt us to seek uh, uh, reconciliation and to make amends if, if possible. Um, but that comes then as a result of the real goal, a result of the repentance. And then on the, the flip side, the rest of the flock, having that strayed sheep come back, we ought to be ready and willing to joyfully receive them back, not harboring any resentment or bitterness or grudge, forgiving each other as we've been forgiven so much more by God. And the verses right before this and the verses right after it all point to mercy, forgiveness, letting go of, of debt. But these verses here, these, these practical verses, 15, 16, and 17, they, they address those scenarios in which action may need to be taken to prevent further harm. Because this is important. To forgive is not the same as to ignore. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to take action in your heart. To forgive a sin is not the same as ignoring a sin. In fact, to ignore blatant sin would be to have no care for that person who's sinning or the people around them that may be impacted. <laughs> if you love someone, you tell them when they have spinach in their teeth, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Depending on the person. <laughs> to me, if, if you ever see something in my teeth, I want you to tell me so I can get it out, right? That's the, that's the same idea. Of course, you, and you, when you do that, you kind of try to do it subtly, privately, you know, got spinach in your teeth. You don't make a big, big deal out of it. And there are also times when, you know, we may forgive a sin in our hearts. We may, you know, come to accept the person and forgive, but for the protection of the, the little ones, of the flock, and ourselves and each other, sometimes there still is an issue that needs to be addressed, even if we've done the, the act of forgiveness. But whatever action is taken, the underlying motive that's taken is still always to restore that lost sheep. It's still out of love and value and respect for that person, even if they're completely at fault. And Jesus recognizes that there's a practical human reality to this uh, situation, and there's just an, an inevitably there's going to be conflict, and inevitably there will be people resistant to returning or repenting. So he provides this kind of simple three-step process uh, with which to approach conflict. The first is to approach the person directly, not make a public scandal out of it. Remember, this is preceded by humility 
and the motive of reconciliation, not accusation or revenge or pride. If you can resolve it amongst yourselves, whoever's directly involved, then, you know, that's great. Forgive and move on. That's kind of the ideal situation. Like the spinach, it's like you got spinach in your teeth. Here's a toothpick. Go, there's a mirror over there. Go get it out. Okay, great. Thanks. Goes and gets it. If not, then you bring one or two others in the situation as, as witnesses or, or moderators, kind of third parties that can, can help diffuse the situation, objectively testify as to what they're seeing has happened or not happened. So let's say they don't even believe there's spinach. I tell you, you have spinach in your teeth. I don't believe it. Nope. Okay, well, I'll get, you, I'm going to pull someone over. That's like, am I crazy or is there spinach? Oh, yeah, you got spinach in your teeth. And then, you know, hopefully that does it. Worst case scenario, <laughs> they, they know all about it. Oh, I know, yeah, I'm saving that for later. That's, that's fine. So the worst case scenario is they, they know all about it and they're just totally okay with it and they don't, they're just offended that you're calling them out on it. Oh, and by the way, in verse 16, Jesus is, is quoting from a law that you can find in Deuteronomy, which is why it's in you know, bold there. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, uh, One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we find similarly in Numbers 35.30, and actually uses an example, if anyone kills a person, the murderer is to be put to death based on the word of witnesses. But no one is to be put to, be put to death based on the testimony of one witness. This is a serious case. This is not spinach in the teeth. You know, I'm using kind of silly examples rather than murder as, as the primary example. But this concept, it had serious legal precedent in Jewish law. And, and it continues to be taught, this, this principle of having two or three witnesses as a guiding principle. And you see it referenced even throughout the New Testament writings. And ultimately, the underlying concept is really whenever conflict occurs, we should try to address it directly rather than making a big public deal out of it. And then, if necessary, gradually escalating it only as, as necessary in order to resolve it. If attempting to resolve it personally doesn't work, bringing in another witness doesn't work, bring it to the church. And in our case, we would say, you know, that means bring it first to the elders. It's not like you'd just stand up here and announce it. You'd come to the elders, and then we would kind of... Uh, provide some guidance and assistance moving forward with how to, how to deal with that issue. And if, if even that doesn't work, that person has at that point demonstrated that they do not regard the authority of the church and essentially don't want to have anything to do with the church. So what Jesus says basically is just consider them as an outsider. Just don't even think of them as being a part of the church. Now, does that mean you shun them? No. When he says, you know, treat them as, as tax collectors and Gentiles, what did Jesus do with tax collectors and Gentiles and sinners? He ate with them. He ministered to them. He reached out to them. So you don't, this is not, um, this is not excommunication. It doesn't mean you have to kick them out of the building, not let them in for your, your, your church services and your church building. Well, no, not necessarily. I, for, I'm not sure why someone in that position would want to keep, you know, attending services in, in a church body like that. Um, but unless someone is, is uh, uh, sorry, oh, 
church is not a building, right? We say that all the time. Church is not a building, and being in the building doesn't make you a part of the church. So just someone being in the building doesn't mean they're a part of the church. Unless someone is, you know, a threat to others in some way, whether physically or spiritually, um, you know, bad teaching or, you know, anything like that. There's really no reason to physically force someone out. But yeah, if someone's spreading false teaching or just standing up and screaming obscenities throughout the service or um, lighting fireworks in the nursery, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to kick you out. And again, yeah, I'm using some kind of silly and extreme examples, but there are very real situations in which you know, there's inappropriate teaching or inappropriate behavior that may require a proactive response from, from the church and the church authority which is why this passage is often referred to when describing the concept of church discipline. Have you ever heard, hear that term before? It kind of sounds weird, and, and different churches approach it different ways, but that's, this is really what it's uh, talking about, how it should be handled. It's anytime a church body is really taking action in response to sin in the church. Sometimes it is necessary, but it's crucial to, as I said before, just consider the whole passage in the context of the rest of the chapter realizing that the goal is always restoration. And the goal of all of this, of the restoration, it, it, the end goal is of having unity within the kingdom of God. Having unity within the, the community of the kingdom. The house divided cannot stand, right? In Psalm 133.1 says, How delightfully good, or how good and pleasant, when brothers dwell in unity, or live together in harmony. And Jesus really emphasizes that concept of, of unity in verse 18. It's echoing what should sound very familiar. He, it's almost verbatim what he said to Peter back in chapter 16. And then in verses 19 and 20, he really illustrates the importance of believers worshiping and praying together rather than as isolated individuals. So Jesus Previously, we talked about how he told Peter that whatever Peter would do, the decisions he would make would be reflections of what had already been done in heaven. And this would later apply to things like uh, permitting certain foods that weren't permitted before or not requiring circumcision of Gentiles. And now he is applying that concept of, from Peter now to the church as a whole. He's saying that what the church does on earth, when done in unity, will be a reflection of what's been done in heaven. And specifically, he's saying this in the context of restoring a brother, right? So if a church agrees to restore someone after seeing repentance, we have assurance that he is also restored before God, because God will always forgive a repentant heart. Furthermore, we have you know, kind of the, the comforting statement that we are not without the, the comfort and guidance of Christ himself. Yes, he's going to leave, but he also says this at this time, probably a mysterious statement to them, that whenever we gather in his name, he is here with us. And we know from the book of Acts and our experience today that it's his spirit that he, he sent, and through his spirit, he'll, he'll provide wisdom and discernment if we, if, he, if we trust him in any given situation. So next week, we're going to be looking more closely at the conclusion of, of this chapter, and we're going to see Peter kind of questioning the implications 
of this, of being willing to welcome sheep back into the fold willy-nilly. Really, that's a lot of forgiveness and mercy. Even after they willingly run away, Peter's a little bit like questioning of this, and we'll get to see that next week. Uh, so for now, to summarize uh, what I think is really the, the main thrust of, of this section, we should all value ourselves and each other as valuable children of God, treasures to Him. And if someone in our flock goes astray, the goal in approaching them is not to beat them up, not to punish them, but to restore them. Those of us who are in the church should be striving to act as one body, unified in our worship, in our prayer, in our ministries, throughout our lives. And as we'll get more into next week, we must be willing to forgive each other with as much mercy as God has forgiven us. God, I thank you so much for your incredibly merciful forgiveness towards us. You've demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still running away from you, you sent your son, your only son, to die for our sins so that through him we can be brought back to you Help us to live together in harmony and unity as a church that brings glory to you and honor to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.